Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Last time, we talked about some skirmishing in Lauderdale County around a failed rebel attack on Athens late in January 1864. Following the attack, Colonel Phillips of the 9th Ohio Cavalry, General Dodge's right-hand man, led a raid to clean the rebels out of Colbert's Reserve and make the north bank of the Tennessee more secure for the Union forces, who were centered around the still-under-construction railroad line between Nashville, Columbia, Pulaski, Tennessee, and Athens, Alabama. The military events and skirmishes of February and March will take a back seat today, and the next episode we'll talk exclusively about those. Today I'm going to talk about the complex socio-political situation that had developed in Union-held Middle Tennessee and North Alabama by January and February 1864. Specifically, we'll explore the lawlessness and depredations committed against citizens by men both in and out of uniform, bitterness and rivalry in the Union officer corps, and the complicated status of slavery and enslaved people in Tennessee. The legal status of slavery and enslaved people in Tennessee was exceedingly complicated on the ground, and was the cause for much confusion and dissent at the time, and subsequently is quite tricky to explain today. On the one hand, the Emancipation Proclamation excluded the state of Tennessee from its provisions. Enslaved persons living in Tennessee remained nominally enslaved in 1864, just as they were in 1860. But on the other hand, as we've already seen, in practice there was an ever-present need for teamsters, orderlies, and general laborers to assist the army, who were often impressed from local enslaved populations by the Union Army, often to spare white soldiers from having to perform those same tasks. Not to mention the recruitment of black soldiers in Tennessee, either by recruiting parties or from those who escaped bondage by flocking to Union camps. There was already a well-established precedent from before the proclamation in the earliest days of occupation of the Upper South, as we saw in North Alabama during the spring and summer of 1862 under Generals Buell and Mitchell, that slaveholders who were disloyal or assisted the rebellion were liable to have their slave property confiscated by virtue of their disloyalty, simply in order to hinder their material ability to support the rebellion. Whereas a loyal slaveholder might be permitted to retain their slave property unrestricted. But now, it could be argued that any slaveholder who refused to allow his or her slaves to be impressed into the service of the United States or to serve in uniform could, in so doing, be considered disloyal, and thus could have their slaves confiscated anyway, whether they gave them up voluntarily or not. As General Dodge explained to Colonel Meisner, quote, My orders require me to press all Negroes I need. I consider that every able-bodied Negro who can be used to advantage the government should be taken, and a man who objects to let his Negro serve the government when he himself is not required to, but is protected by that government, can have no sympathy from us. No man who has cited the rebellion, either by direct or indirect means, can enjoy the privileges of a 
loyal man, or be protected as such in property, etc., unless he learns to ignore slavery. With the proclamation as our guide, no officer can admit that any person is properly held as a slave in Tennessee. End quote. It was a catch-22 that, in practice, meant slavery was dead in Tennessee in all but name by January 1864, a fact which Major General Russo recognized, albeit rather lamenting more than celebrating, when he said, quote, Slavery is virtually dead in Tennessee, although the state is accepted from the Emancipation Proclamation, end quote. In the next breath, Rousseau went on to launch a series of complaints about the formerly enslaved population, claiming they wandered the country unemployed, relying on the government to support them, and alarming white citizens by arming themselves. Ultimately, though, it was clear that enslaved people were no longer obliged to stay on the plantations where they were held in bondage, and if their former masters did not employ their labor with wages, they were at liberty to find other opportunities, which droves of them apparently did. Rousseau even complained, quote, In many cases, Negroes leave their homes to work for themselves, boarding and lodging with their masters, defiantly asserting their right to do it, end quote. Slaveholders may have on paper still held the right to their human property, but in practice they could not realistically hope to continue to benefit from their labor unless they provided a financial incentive for them to stay willingly. General Dodge acknowledged this paradigm shift to free labor when he encouraged erstwhile slaveholders to hire the labor of their former slaves instead, implying that any further adherence to the old system was at odds with the expressed purpose of the United States as it had then evolved to be, vis-a-vis -vis the permanent extermination of the southern slaveocracy, whether the state where it existed was exempted from the Emancipation Proclamation or not. Quote, the policy once inaugurated that all the slaves in the state are free and must be hired and their labor paid for, it will force all to adopt the policy. No matter whether those opposed to it agree to it or not, they will have to do it for self-protection, as Negroes will go where they can get paid for their labor, and the government will protect them in doing it. End quote. Apparently, some former slaveholders were perfectly amenable to the change, or at least knew that things had changed and wouldn't change back, and were prepared to keep up with the times. On January 19, 1864, General Dodge, in asking General Thomas for a consistent policy regarding a kind of minimum wage for formerly enslaved people, remarked, quote, There are in this state a large number of planters who have decided to act upon the fact that slaves are free and that they can no longer hold them to labor, and they are anxious to have some settled plan upon which they can act in employing such Negroes as the government does not require. End quote. Major General Russo, however, did not interpret the proclamation as liberally as General Dodge. 
In the same letter I quoted from earlier, he explained his contempt for the newfound policy of masters hiring slaves. Quote, General Payne has adopted the policy of hiring slaves to their owners by printed contracts, made in blank and filled up for the occasion, which, though a flagrant usurpation, I have not interfered with his action on that and many other subjects, preferring to submit such matters to the consideration of the general commanding the department. Officers in command of colored troops are in constant habit of pressing all able-bodied slaves into the military service of the United States. This state being accepted from the Emancipation Proclamation, I supposed all these things are against good faith and the policy of the government." End quote. The nominal legal persistence of slavery created a strange ambiguity that meant enslaved people could theoretically be returned to their former masters even after escaping behind federal lines, but only under certain conditions. One, that the masters were loyal to the government. Two, that the government did not require their labor. And three, that they were willing to return. According to General Dodge, Quote, I have given a large number of citizens permits to go and see their Negroes, and if the latter desired to return to slavery, they would be permitted to do so. But I have not yet found any who desired to return to slavery. End quote. Dodge, however, placed a caveat upon his receptiveness to formerly enslaved black people taking refuge in federal camps, saying, quote, I often see Negroes who desire to lay around our camps and do nothing. This I will not allow. They must work while they are with me, or seek those who will support them without work." End quote. Dodge further explained that the majority of those within his lines, however, were destined to labor for the army. Quote, those that come to my lines I generally put to work on abandoned plantations or hire out to parties to pick cotton, etc. But this is only a very small proportion of the slaves in the country who are not fit for the army. End quote. Whether they labored in servitude for their so-called masters, or more or less freely for the Union Army, labor was unavoidable for the black people of North Alabama and Middle Tennessee within the evolving societal framework. But those who remained in bondage, unaffected by the proclamation or the presence of the federal army, appear to have been vastly the exception, not the rule. The requirements of the army were enormous, and there was a constant need for labor to meet their strategic needs. Laboring, especially on the railroad, with all the supplemental infrastructure it required, like guard shacks and water tanks, demanded the collective toil of hundreds to carry out, and depended upon local enslaved people to be possible. General Dodge summarized the situation, quote, The work has been immense, and the works are very creditable ones. The water tanks, switches, track, etc. have all been put in order, and some 2,000 cords of wood got out and put on the road, sawed ready for use, and the entire road put in perfect running order. All the work has been done by soldiers of this command and Negroes pressed in the country, End quote. Additionally, 
the fact that black men were also serving the United States in uniform as soldiers contributed another shade of complexity to the situation. Their recruitment into ranks meant their labor was not available to their former masters, even if they were now paid laborers, and therefore was often vehemently protested. As we saw from General Russo, allegations were made that officers of African-American regiments were impressing black men from the community to serve in uniform whether they were willing to do so or not. Major General Logan complained to headquarters from Huntsville on February 26th, quote, A major of colored troops is here with his party capturing Negroes with or without their consent. Many persons in this country employed their Negroes to make crops. They are being conscripted. Is this right? It will entirely stop the cultivation of farms that were being prepared for crops by loyal men. I desire you to telegraph me instructions in the premises so that I may interfere in these cases." End quote. Major General Grant then clarified to General Logan, quote, "...have recruiting officers discontinue impressing Negroes who are employed in any way by the government or by persons known to be loyal to the government. We want to encourage the cultivation of the soil, and all persons living in states declared free by the President can employ their Negroes under Treasury regulations, and the fact of such employment is protection against impressment." End quote. Curiously, in other words, the simple act of employing rather than enslaving one's former slaves was tantamount to a display of loyalty to the government, which would in theory then protect those laborers from impressment. The question of impressment aside, it is clear that there continued to be no shortage of men looking to join union ranks of their own free will. Black men from North Alabama joined the federal standard so readily that entire regiments were raised, as General Dodge explained to General Thomas on January 19th, quote, I may state that I have already recruited under your old order two regiments in North Alabama known as the 2nd and 3rd Alabama Infantry African Descent, and will soon have another underway. I find no difficulty in raising a few regiments wherever I happen to stop on any march. End quote. The 2nd and 3rd Alabama Infantry African Descent would later be renumbered the 110th and 111th U.S. Colored Infantry, respectively. Dodge even anticipated he could with ease raise another regiment from the formerly enslaved population of North Alabama. Quote, I have written you two or three letters in relation to the organization of Negro troops in North Alabama and sent letters to Washington. I now have two regiments recruited under your orders given while I was at Corinth. The Second Alabama African descent are on fatigue duty exclusively in the Pioneer Corps as Teamsters, etc., and are organized for the purpose of receiving proper pay and to keep them under proper discipline. I have found no trouble in raising Negro troops at any point where I happen to be situated, and no doubt as we move forward in the spring shall still have an opportunity." End quote. As he mentioned, that regiment was assigned to so-called fatigue duty, which 
relegated their role within the army to be more that of laborers than as skirmishers in order to save white regiments from having to perform those duties, which Dodge plainly stated to General Thomas on February 7th, quote, I think I shall have no trouble in raising one more regiment north of the Tennessee in North Alabama before spring opens, which will enable me to leave on our lines of communication two good, well-disciplined regiments. That in Pioneer Corps, etc., I shall take with me, it being considered part of the command and being divided up upon the trains, etc. This alone to me has saved over 500 white soldiers who have formerly done that duty. End quote. While the situation would change by the end of the year, for the time being, whether they served as impressed laborers or volunteered to serve in uniform, black men from the Tennessee Valley were fated to labor as they had done since the beginning of the conflict some nominally free, others nominally enslaved. But it is crucial to recognize they were actively participating in subduing the rebellion and thereby, ultimately, dismantling the southern slave society in their own communities. Black women and children, meanwhile, were also drawn to Union camps. General Russo complained, quote, It is now and has been for some time the practice of soldiers to go into the country and bring in wagon loads of Negro women and children to this city, and I suppose to other posts. End quote. His language leaves it ambiguous whether those women and children were being removed from the surrounding country per se, or whether their passage was merely being granted. That is, whether soldiers were compelling them to go, or allowing them to come along. I would tend to think the latter, personally, but either way, Russo clearly blamed the soldiers for bringing them. In most cases, however, it appears the Union Army sought to employ them to the furthest extent possible. Providing support, e.g. the basics of life, was hard enough for the government to manage for its own servicemen and animals. There was simply nothing extra to provide to refugees, and as a result, they were hired out to work in the fields, just as they had done under the old regime. General Dodge explained, quote, The women and children, as a general thing, are hired out to farmers, etc., and are doing well. Those under my own control are at work picking cotton and paying their way instead of being a burden to the government. The abandoned plantations are being rented, and that gives many of them good wages as well as good homes. End quote. At least some of the women and children coming into federal lines were simply trying to keep their families together. As a very enlightening message from one Captain Feeney to Captain Barnes, dated January 26, 1864, at Prospect, Tennessee, reveals, quote, Can I have an order to send about 60 contrabands, women and children, to Brown's Farm contraband camp? They were sent this morning and would not be received. They are the families of soldiers that are here. End quote. It is important to note here that the women and children were not received into federal camps to be with their husbands and fathers in uniform, but were sent to labor instead at a contraband camp. References to black women and children are preciously scarce in army documents and correspondence. From this one remarkable reference, we can draw a few important inferences. One, as men withdrew from their communities where they were previously held in bondage in order to serve the Union Army, they were sometimes accompanied by their wives and children. 
Two, once behind Union lines, families were not necessarily able to stay together. And three, seeking refuge behind Union lines was not a guarantee of being free from labor, but it was at least a chance to be free from the lifelong bondage of chattel slavery. As we saw, even if a former master came to Union camps looking to reclaim their slave property, Union commanders like Dodge left it up to the discretion of the enslaved person whether they would return to bondage, which very few apparently preferred. Altogether, the situation for people of color in Tennessee and North Alabama at this time was in a state of revolution, which the Union authorities struggled to maintain and apply a constant policy towards. Some, like Russo, took the letter of the proclamation to mean that slavery should not be interfered with at all, and masters given the preferential treatment in any case. And others, like Dodge, recognized that the extermination of slavery was now the war policy of the North, whether the state was exempted from the proclamation or not. And all those who would cling to the old system or obstruct conversion to the new order of things were disloyal anyway. There were bridges to be built, track to be laid, and lines to be guarded, all to provide breath in the lungs of the war machine in preparation for the spring campaign. There was no room to coddle the genteel planter class, and no more power to reason that they could just be left alone to conduct their affairs as if there was no war. In practice, slavery was dead in Tennessee, just as it was in North Alabama. The president put it to paper, and the army put it to practice. Brigadier General Dodge had his hands full in the first months of 1864. From his headquarters at Pulaski, Tennessee, he was responsible for the enormous task of overseeing the construction of the highly important railroad from Nashville to Decatur, as we've seen, and directing subordinates like Colonel Phillips on missions to guard that line against rebel assaults, which included a failed attempt to take Athens and a thwarted rebel advance at Shoal Creek Bridge. And he also had to manage the logistics of directing the human labor that made those tasks possible, which included the liberal use of impressed black laborers from the surrounding local communities. This practice, combined with the murky legality of slaveholding in Tennessee, which I described, set the stage for contention between Dodge and another Union officer in Middle Tennessee who did not see eye to eye with Dodge's interpretation of his orders, and who felt that he was overstepping on his own sphere of authority. The officer was Colonel Henry Rutgers Meisner of the 14th Michigan Infantry, headquartered at Columbia, Tennessee. General Dodge's personal papers, which are digitally available through the Council Bluffs Iowa Library, contain correspondence from Meisner to Dodge, alleging improper conduct on the part of Dodge's officers at the injury of Meisner's own authority. On January 22, 1864, Colonel Meisner wrote to Dodge complaining of one incident, quote, 
Mr. Neely, residing five miles from here near Pulaski Pike, has just returned from Pulaski, having made an ineffectual attempt to report to you the conduct of a recruiting party under Sergeant Major Henry. This recruiting party by force took the last Negro upon Mr. Neely's place for the purpose of making him a soldier. Mr. Neely proceeded to Linville and saw Colonel Miller, who declined interfering in the matter. He then proceeded to see you, but upon arriving at your headquarters and stating his business, was told by an officer, I judge to have been your assistant adjutant, General Barnes, that he could not see you upon that subject, that nothing would be done in the premises. Mr. Neely then remarked that Colonel Meisner had told him that it was not the law to force Negroes to be soldiers against their will, to which either Captain Barnes or an officer engaged in the same officer replied, Colonel Meisner is very poor authority upon any subject. The language used by Mr. Neely is the law, as announced by the Secretary of War, and is well understood. Having ever treated your command with courtesy, and exerted myself to supply every want as they passed through here, I do not feel disposed to submit to the unmilitary and impertinent expression, and no, you will not countenance such conduct. I feel it due myself that the offender should receive your reprimand, or that I should prefer charges against him, but your reprimand is all I desire. The expression is similar to expressions heretofore made by Captain Barnes." End quote. In light of the confusing and sometimes contradictory applications of the various commanders in Middle Tennessee regarding the status of enslaved people and the impressment of men into service, it is not surprising that such an instance should have arisen where one officer's policy may be pitted against another by a slaveholder who felt injuriously put out by the Union Army's recruitment tactics. Yet, in this instance, Meisner made it clear to Dodge that the discrepancy was personally insulting to him, especially the inclusion of the quote saying Meisner is a very poor authority upon any subject, which warranted not only a correction of an overreaching policy regarding Mr. Neely's slaves, but also a reprimand of the subordinate to right the wrong against Meisner's character. General Dodge, however, categorically dismissed and contradicted Colonel Meisner's objections and put forward the argument we explored earlier that a truly loyal man would not be seeking to hold on to his slaves anyway, especially not to the deprivation of the government. Quote, I allow no officer to speak to me in disrespectful terms of any officer, and the staff all understand it. I have heard Captain Barnes defend you when officers here complained of bad treatment, etc. As to Mr. Neely's case, slavery has no doubt warped his allegiance, or he would not be so anxious to get back the services of a Negro who is doing our government good service in building stockades to defend us from his friends. I know of no orders that prohibit the taking of Negroes either as laborers or as soldiers. But I have orders from Brigadier General Thomas, Adjutant General, United States Army, that distinctly provide for both, and issued by order of the Secretary of War, see Special Orders Number 45 and 85 issued at Vicksburg. But I do not propose to recruit Negroes in Tennessee except for fatigue and railroad duty." End quote. 
At the same time, there was also the very serious problem, which does not seem to be overblown at all, that men in federal regiments wearing federal uniforms were committing criminal offenses, abusing the local population between Columbia and Pulaski. While there was certainly the very legal necessity of commandeering horses, fuel, and forage from local people for the use of the army, as we've seen before, soldiers sometimes did not stop themselves from taking other articles that had no military necessity, in other words, robbing and plundering for their own gain. Colonel Meissner reported to Dodge one incident on January 21st, quote, Mr. Taylor has just come in reporting six men in our uniform mounted passing near Mooresville yesterday, taking the last horse from every person, giving no receipt, and robbing people of their watches, gloves, etc. There was no officer with them. They said they belonged to the 14th Michigan and told Mr. Taylor to report to Colonel Meissner. I have given him a pass to you, end quote. He had only the day before reported another alarming incident. Quote, Mr. Neely and Mr. Francis on Pulaski Pike, four miles out, have been much abused, and last night at ten o'clock, Mr. Bridges, out four miles on Mooresville Road, was attacked by three soldiers, robbed of his money, a rope put around his neck, dragged about the yard, and left insensible. End quote. Such incidents as this, where a man's life was threatened, violence employed to rob him of his money by soldiers in federal regiments, clearly were anything but lawful takings of supplies. They were war crimes, and apparently growing rampant. Dodge appears to have taken the allegations quite seriously, asking Meisner on January 2nd to send him the names of the abused citizens and saying he had already caught some of the offenders. What's clear as well from reading Dodge's correspondence was the fact that local citizens were working in concert with rogue Union soldiers to commit these acts. General Dodge informed Meisner on February 3rd, quote, I have received from you eight complaints of depredations of troops, two in relation to Major Hanna, both of which were investigated and stock returned in both cases, one in relation to Captain Hempstead, who is now awaiting trial, and the rest in reference to robberies which were committed by a gang of citizens and 18th Missouri, as before reported, which I have caught, and they are now being tried, and they are the only complaints that have reached me. Do you consider the taking of stock, forage, and subsistence for the use of troops to be theft? And in most cases, have not receipts been given when taken? End quote. You may notice his defensive tone in the last few sentences. Dodge considered that Meisner's accusations were overblown in some cases, regarding specifically impressments and acquisitions of forage and animals from local people. It had just come to Dodge's attention that Meisner was making complaints to department headquarters, and not to General Dodge himself, regarding the alleged misconduct of troops under his command, which earned Colonel Meisner the wrath of General Dodge. He immediately set about doing damage control to the high command. Dodge telegraphed Major General Russo, quote, I have received some sweeping charges against my command made by Colonel Meisner. The proper way of anyone who was depredated upon by any of my men is for them to report to me. I can then find out who the guilty parties are. Most of the robberies committed have been made by a band of citizens, and I have caught ten of them. All they have done my command get credit for. 
I respectfully request that Colonel Meisner send all citizens south of Duck River and outside of Columbia who complain of bad conduct on the part of my troops to me, and that they that disobey orders in any way will be swiftly punished. End quote. And to General Grant himself, he telegraphed, quote, The charges against this command by Colonel Meisner are very sweeping. Cannot you send an officer down here to investigate? Captain Chenoweth is well posted in the command and could visit different localities and ascertain facts. In nine cases out of ten, they are based upon the fact that I have taken horses, mules, and subsistence stores and pressed Negroes for government use, and the charges will continue until it is settled, whether in doing this my entire command are to be branded as a mob and a band of thieves. This is the purport of Colonel Meisner's dispatch. Please answer. End quote. But Colonel Meisner did not back down, and, in fact, only intensified his condemnation in even more scathing language, writing to Dodge on February 3rd. The acts referred to have been complained of almost every day for the last two months. The best Union citizens here say that such disgraceful conduct has never been known in this section by Federal or Confederate troops. Men have run wild, and many officers have protested against it. Seventh Illinois and cavalry have acted in this way. The very subsistence has been taken from families who have taken the oath and given evidence of loyalty. These people General Russo is determined to protect. I doubt if there is a smokehouse that has not been robbed between Linville and Smithland, this by men who have rations. Major Hannah, 50th Regiment, Illinois Infantry, sneered at my protection papers to parties where my jurisdiction extends and under pretense of leaving a team, would turn out worthless stock he had with him, while he and his men cleared out the smokehouses. This after you had assured me no more stock would be taken in Murray County. General Russo has directed me to send Sergeant Major Hanna under guard to Nashville if he comes near me pressing Negroes to be soldiers." End quote. Colonel Meisner was overplaying his hand. General Dodge, indeed, was acting under positive orders and enjoyed the rightly earned esteem of General Grant, leader of all federal forces west of the Appalachians. Dodge was a railroad builder of stunning dispatch and energy, with a network of informants stretching deep into rebeldom to boot, while thwarting rebel forays across to the north bank of the Tennessee, while guarding the underbelly of the occupying Union army in Tennessee. After receiving Meisner's rebuke of February 3rd, Dodge wrote a lengthy letter to General Grant, too lengthy for me to quote in full. Dodge first set about defending himself, acknowledging some of the truth in Meisner's criticism, but also largely rebuffing the scale of what he was charging. Quote, I enclose copies of two dispatches received through regular military channels from Colonel Meisner. It has been my endeavor to do all I could in carrying out my orders not to encroach upon any officer. You are aware that I have had to feed 12,000 men while I have been here, also 6,000 animals, that I have mounted three regiments of infantry with stock taken from the country and refitted my entire trains. When I arrived here, I had no animals fit for service, having turned over everything I had at Corinth to the 15th Army Corps, because I was ordered to move, and when the order came, I moved out with just what I had and could lay my hands on. That 
Irregularities and depredations may have been committed, I have no doubt. Colonel Meisner reported eight cases to me. I immediately made thorough investigation and found a gang existed in the 18th Missouri, which was connected with a gang of citizens, ten of which I have in irons, and every one of whom I will hang if convicted. End quote. He then directly accuses Colonel Meisner of acting improperly by subverting his own authority, maligning the reputation of his command, and going through improper channels to redress the situation. Quote, Colonel Meisner, instead of sending these citizens to me, heard their complaints, telegraphed me in general about them, and then turned around and abused the entire command to his superior officer. Most of the complaints are from citizens living south of Columbia in Duck River. He claims jurisdiction over eight or ten miles of country south of there, and has gone so far as to arrest my officers, taking cattle within that limit, claiming they were encroaching upon his rights. Now I submit, was it not proper and just the citizens should be referred to me and I given a chance to punish the guilty? Or if acting up to orders, so explain to the citizen? The fact of the matter is, I have been looked upon here as an intruder, and my command treated as such. See the orders he has issued having direct reference to us." End quote. Dodge provided an example from his previous experience of how the situation could have been handled properly. He says that when General Crook came through en route to West Tennessee the previous December, not only did he assist his command in procuring forage and transportation, but saying as well, quote, Many, very many of his men committed robberies around us, but instead of denouncing his command, I took hold with him. We detected the men, and he swiftly punished them. I assure you that I will not on any account shield or excuse a man who is guilty of disobedience to orders, much less those whose depredations reflect upon an entire command. It is galling to any officer to have his command designated as mobs, thieves, and bandits, and have these sweeping charges go up through entire departments where he and his command are entire strangers. I do know that I am considered as being a bandit when I forage, subsist and mount my command out of the country, and a especially when I press Negroes to build railroads. But my orders are positive in this. General Sherman said I must do so, and I consider it not only right, but that duty requires it." He concludes by saying, quote, I could say many bitter things in retaliation for the discourtesies shown in these dispatches, and show that I have borne many indignities that few officers would quietly bear. I care not for them so long as they concern my immediate troops, but when they become malignant attacks upon all, and are sent out to an entire army strangers to me, it is another thing. I submit the dispatches and orders, and trust that General Grant will at least order Colonel Meisner to hereafter send persons who make complaints, which call out such outrageous attacks, and so bitter, to me for redress." End quote. General Dodge soon heard, through the grapevine from Captain Chenoweth, that General Grant was so displeased with Colonel Meisner's behavior that he had given orders to arrest him, but, quote, Meisner has not been arrested yet because General Rollins thought it best to delay the matter a little, but he told me today that Meisner's command would be taken away from Columbia. You stand just as high as it is possible for you to do in the estimation of all at these headquarters, and anyone who endeavors to injure you only draws ridicule upon himself. End quote. 
Finally, on February 15th, Grant wrote to Meisner himself, addressing in no uncertain terms just what he thought of Meisner's smear campaign. Quote, your wholesale attack upon General Dodge, a gallant and superior officer, is uncalled for and improper. The authority you usurped to yourself in arresting officers acting under his orders and outside of your guard lines was unmilitary and in bad taste. The whole tenor of your dispatches show bad temper and is calculated to create hostility of feeling between troops expected to cooperate with each other. End quote. Meisner's wholesale attack notwithstanding, it doesn't erase the fact that depredations were being committed in the department, and between making accusations and defenses back and forth to one another in January and February, Dodge and Meisner were very much engaged in rooting out and punishing the men who were essentially terrorizing the local communities. One regiment especially seems to have been involved in this marauding, and is named again and again the 18th Missouri Infantry. On January 23rd, one Colonel Cummings, writing from Cullioka Station, informed General Dodge, quote, I relieved the 18th Missouri of this command on the evening of the 21st. I find there have been terrible outrages committed there, the latest being on the 21st. Old and crippled men and women have been cruelly beaten, almost murdered, and robbed. The cases are very numerous. I am satisfied that this is carried on by two or more citizens, and perhaps assisted by as many more soldiers, perhaps from Columbia, and perhaps from the 18th. I think I know one of the 18th, and feel confident I have my eye on two guilty citizens. I want this stopped, and do not want my command led into such capers. If I catch any citizen or soldier at it, I will send them to heaven without waiting for the chaplain." End quote. The names of some of the culprits were at this time already becoming clear. Dodge had informed Colonel Meisner on the 21st, quote, I have a man, Stutz, that belongs to the gang. Caught him today. The one I have is the one known here as being one of the robbers. There must be two of them, and the gang must be larger than was supposed. I cannot give Christian names of the men spoken of, end quote. Meisner apparently requested that the men, including Stutz, be remanded to Columbia, but Dodge explained that doing so would blow the cover of his confidential informants. Quote, I do not wish to send Stutz and MacDonald at present. I have a secret party at work and wish to move quietly without attracting attention. End quote. Stutz and MacDonald were in custody at Lawrenceburg, apparently, under the watch of Major Fitzgibbons. Quote, I have got MacDonald and Stutz. I understand the leaders of the gang to be four men I arrested at Lawrenceburg some time since. They pretended to be scouts for General Dodge and released by his order. End quote. On the 23rd, Dodge sent this remarkable telegram to Colonel Meisner. Quote, the man you have is named George Stutz. He is a brother of the one I have. MacDonald I cannot get the name of, but he was in it. I think they were connected with a party of the 18th Missouri, but I cannot tell yet. See if you cannot pump the men you have. 
I think the men in the 18th Missouri hid while the others stole. We caught this man near Columbia. King, alias Biffles, is now up in that direction. End quote. When I read that, bells were ringing in my mind as I recalled a very specific and remarkable local connection. In the SCC petition of Lauderdale County claimant Jacob Stutz, Mr. Stutz mentions, in proof of his own loyalty, that his son, George, was in the 18th Missouri, along with his other son, Samuel. A third son, Walter, was in the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry, Thomas Jefferson Seipert's regiment. Walter testified, along with one Henry C. MacDonald, in the petition of William Danley, another Union soldier of the 2nd Mounted Tennessee. William Danley was my fourth great-grandfather, and Walter Stutz was his son-in-law, the second husband of William's daughter, Mary Martina, my third great-grandmother. Ironically, Jacob Stutz says General Dodge's force encamped at his house on the march to Pulaski late in 1863, only a couple of months before this all occurred. During their stay, among other items, they consumed 27 gallons of brandy. If this George Stutz is the same, then it appears within the span of two months he followed the Union Army, joined their ranks, and immediately set about enriching himself on the spoils of war. It's not really difficult to imagine how one might witness a roving army encamp near one's house, taking whatever they please, and then move out the next day without consequences, and then think to oneself, hey, if you can't beat him, join him. The gang within the 18th Missouri was obviously not merely interested in sustaining the army. They illustrate how the power vacuum of occupation, and indeed the power granted in wearing the uniform of the occupier, enabled criminals to ply their ill-gotten trade by preying upon local people. After catching one of their ringleaders, a man named Vance, Dodge wrote to General Grant on February 18th, quote, Vance is a private of Company G, 18th Missouri Infantry. He was found guilty of the charges of assault and battery with intent to commit a felony and of robbery. He is a very bad and dangerous man and has been the leader of a gang of robbers composed of citizens and members of the 18th Missouri Infantry. The specifications to the charges of which he is found guilty show that he went with his gang at night to the house of a citizen whom he robbed of all the money he had, and he himself knocked down Mrs. Davis down several times by blows upon her head with a pistol, nearly fracturing her skull. Also knocked Mr. Davis down with his pistol, dragged him out of his house some distance, and beat him insensible for the purpose of getting him to tell where his money was. Mr. and Mrs. Davis are very old people, seventy years old. He, Vance, doubtless has been a professional robber and probably murderer." End quote. What is also clear from the correspondence, as we've seen, is that such gangs relied on the support of people in the community to carry out their criminal activity. 
Another telegram from Dodge to Meisner on January 22nd states, quote, A lot of gorillas are in the habit of quartering with Jane Tillery living on Little Limestone Creek in northeast corner of that county, one half mile south of State Line. Frank Allen and William Hoopwell also harbor them. Both have two sons belonging to the gang. One was killed and the other wounded by our forces. The gang is generally dressed in federal uniform. End quote. Here, General Dodge seemed to believe this particular gang merely wore federal uniforms as a disguise, perhaps as a symbol of authority, or perhaps to place blame for such depredations on the Yankees. However, we can infer from these instances that local people were involved, both in and out of federal uniform, in committing acts of violence and plunder against their neighbors in the Tennessee Valley. Wade Pruitt's bugger saga is replete with such examples. As was the case with Mr. Davis in the example earlier, if it was reputed in the community that a person had a hoard of cash, such whispers would make it back to the organized gangs, who then may prey upon their victims. But the rumors doubtless originated within the community, among the very neighbors of the victims themselves. We see, therefore, a new, ghoulish facet of the Civil War in the Tennessee Valley blossoming here early in 1864. In addition to supporting the needs of the roving armies with the fruits of their crops, witnessing the back and forth of skirmishing caught on the front lines of occupation, local people also contended with their neighbors, who used the chaos of the situation for profit and to settle their own covetous scores. The enemy, therefore, was much less the often-touted northern invader, but the man down the road, or the boy the next county over, who, being released of the scruples of peacetime, may stoop to violence to fulfill their selfish aspirations. And this happened on more occasions than were recorded, or will ever be known. Join us next time as we examine the military events of February and March, as the Federal Army pushes back against the rebels on the south bank of the Tennessee River, and the stage is set for a spring campaign that will make Georgia howl. Thank you so much for joining me.